Good evening, and welcome to the Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. This podcast is proudly a part of the Not After 30 Podcast Network. You can contact the Midnight Owl on Facebook on the Not After 30 Podcast group, on Instagram, the Midnight Owl Podcast, and if you have a story to share, beardedandboard at gmail.com. Good evening and welcome to the Midnight Owl. This week we'll be discussing the supernatural in episode 2, The Wendigo. Canada, the winters can be long, dark, and isolating. The Manitoba winters bring temperatures of minus 40 degrees Celsius. It's a dry cold with next to no moisture in the snow, so it falls down like dust. The land is so fast and flat that it just kind of blows around in big curtains. You can see for kilometers and kilometers on a clear day. The old joke is always that if your dog ran away, it would take three days. When it snows, everything starts to close in. It just blows across all of the farm fields with nothing to break it up or stop it. Some of the scariest drives of my life were coming home from work in whiteout conditions, where you couldn't see the end of your hood, driving only by the yellow line you could see out of the edge of the window on the driver's side door, hoping that no other hapless traveler had decided to stop but didn't pull over far enough. Wondering if the jacket you had won't keep you warm enough until morning, if by some terrible circumstance you found yourself three meters down in a ditch. You realize that the yellow line is white now. You have to correct without overcorrecting. Please, God, no oncoming traffic. But move slowly. The highway is closed. There are transports everywhere along the edge. Did you know that it can get so cold that it can't snow? I didn't before living there. Since coming home, I realized how different a cold southern Ontario has. It's a biting, wet cold. Something that gets into your bones and follows you. Going outside for a dart and icicles forming along your nostrils. Having had mild frostbite from winters before bring painful burning to my fingertips and ears. It's as though someone is holding an iron onto them and won't let go until I'm back inside and appropriately warmed up. This winter can be oppressive at times, hopeless at others. You can wake up in the dark, go to work, Come home in the dark. Or if you're on midnights, your life is darkness. These dark and terrible winters are what gave birth to this week's supernatural creature, or malevolent spirit, the Wendigo. The 
the indigenous people of Canada and northern states have passed down the oral history and cautionary tales of the Wendigo. Something that I have a hard time imagining is what the Canadian winters would have looked like uh, before modern infrastructure and transportation. Living truly in the middle of nowhere, where you know your food is running low and you have very, very little options as to how to feed your family or tribe. Where are you going to get your medicine from, or if someone's sick, where do you take them? There's a few different pronunciations depending where you're getting the oral history from. It's either Wendigo, Wendigo, Wendigo. But uh, I hope that I'm pronouncing it as correctly as I can, and I mean no offense as I go forward. There, uh, there are a few more Aboriginal ideologies and words that I'm going to try to pronunciate and names. But uh, yeah, if I get them wrong, just let me know and I'll try to correct myself afterwards. Um, and if any of the story doesn't sound quite right or if you have other information or possibly experiences, uh, email me at beardedandboard at gmail.com. That's B-E-A-R-D-E-D-A-N-D. B-O-R-E-D at gmail.com. I'm not an expert in the occult and the supernatural. I'm not even an initiate. I'm looking to learn, and I look forward to learning from you guys. So pass along that knowledge to me, and I'll turn around and put it back out there. Thanks. If you've had an encounter with the Wendigo, know someone that has or would like to share an interesting story, please feel welcome to email the Bearded and Board email as well and share your experience. Let me know if you're comfortable with me sharing your story and how you'd want to be identified. The Wendigo is a part of Algonquin folklore, which includes the Ojibwe and Cree peoples. Depending on the area, the description can vary. It's described as a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being, larger than any man, gray-skinned, looking starved and bony, associated in the minds of the people with cold, the northern woods, famine, starvation, murder, and greed. Basil Johnson was an Ojibwe man, a professor, a scholar, and historian. He once described the Wendigo creature, and uh, I just kind of quoted him here. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their head. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from the separations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. Whenever a Wendigo ate a human being, it would grow in proportion to the meal. This means it can never be satiated, never know what fullness is. It appears as a sickening blend of gluttony and famine. The Wendigo is a cunning hunter that can call to people or children and draw them away into solitude, using a voice of a loved one. It retains its intelligence, which is profoundly frightening to me. I like my monsters mindless. Its territory stretches from the Atlantic coast through the Great Lakes region, on both the Canadian and United States borders. A Wendigo can be created a couple of different ways. When a human being commits an act of cannibalism, stories have been told of a hunting party going out and getting snowed in far from help or resupply and driven mad from starvation that cannibalize one of the party. That act is so vile it corrupts the soul, allowing the evil spirit to enter. 
Each successive act of cannibalism makes the now human Wendigo combination more powerful. The only way to stop it is to kill it and burn the body. So associated with the winter, it is described like melting a block of ice. Another way for the Wendigo to enter your body is when a human being becomes too greedy, hoarding things from the rest of the clan. This corruption only grows with a mysterious hunger overcoming the individual. Some said it had the ability to scare away game with an unearthly howl. It can mimic the voices of loved ones to draw victims away from the camps or hunting parties. The more it was able to feed on human flesh, the stronger it became. If it lived long enough, it could call upon the weather and bring in terrible storms or bring night early. Terrifying prospects to a people who were in a famine condition. This brings us to one of the most famous cases. In 1878, an Alberta Plains Cree Aboriginal named Swift Runner, or Kaki Si Kuchin, was snowed in with his family in their isolated home. Swift Runner had been a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police and was thought to be both trustworthy and smart. It is, however, reported that he did have some issues with alcohol. At one point, the police had asked him to leave town and return to his tribe after causing enough trouble. Later, they barred him from even that community for turning the Cree camps into little hells. His wife, mother, brother, and six children retreated into the wilderness to find what solace they could. Reports trickled back to the Northwest Mounted Police that Swift Runner's entire family had been killed in the woods. A patrol was sent out and could not find Swift Runner or his family. In the spring, Swift Runner returned and reported to the police the tragic news of his wife's suicide and the starvation that befell the rest of his family. Swift Runner was arrested. Whispers of how Swift Runner had turned cannibal began to circulate. This concerned the police enough because Swift Runner didn't look emaciated or hungry or that he had gone through a bout of starvation. Swift Runner was detained and accompanied a group of officers back to his winter camp. He showed them where his eldest son was buried. During the winter, his eldest son was stricken with disease and passed. They exhumed his body and found no sign of cannibalism or foul play. During the course of this event, they discovered human bones littering the surrounding area. Swift Runner explained he was possessed by the Wendigo and killed his wife, his mother, and brother, as well as the five remaining children. His camp was approximately 25 miles, walking or snowshoeing, to emergency resupply at the Hudson Bay Company outpost. There were piles of bones and human skulls nearby, some of the bones being hollow, having had the marrow removed. He also claimed that the Wendigo left him and entered his children, causing one to kill and consume the other. With such depraved details, including the hanging of his infant, Swift Runner cannibalized his entire family. The events are unclear as to the exact details, however. The story has been sensationalized and re-reported over and over again. But Swift Runner's immediate confession and sincerity is disturbing. Something to think about is that 25 miles on foot in winter is no small task. But for an accomplished trapper and indigenous person, it would have been easily possible. It appeared no attempt was made, therefore it was not a situation of last resort cannibalism to stave off starvation. He was arrested by authorities, and his execution was carried out by the authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. 
It was the first legal Canadian hanging in the Northwest Territories. It didn't go as smoothly as they had hoped, with people using the hangman's trap as kindling for the fire the night before. At one point, Swiftrunner was quoted as saying, I could kill myself with a tomahawk and save the hangman further trouble. It's noted that he was laughing and joking around with others around some of the fires while they fixed the trap for him with the noose hanging around his neck. He, he actually thanked the people for killing him. He believed with his whole heart the Wendigo was still in him and a part of him. And that to prevent any kind of further bloodshed, he needed to die. Later, rumors circulated that Swift Runner had resorted to cannibalism on a hunting expedition years before, when he was forced to eat a starved hunting partner, which allowed the evil spirit to follow him back. The spirit gave him nightmares for years and years. Now, from one side to the other, we have the case of Jack Fiddler. Jack Fiddler was a well-respected man. He was a chief and also a medicine man of the Ojibwe Cree people. His clan was of the Sucker Dodeman. He was a Wendigo hunter, and over the course of his life, he and his brother Joseph claimed to have killed 14 Wendigo. There's a line from a science fiction book that I... To well, it's a book series, and I, and I absolutely love it. It's the Honor Harrington series. And at one point, there's a, a discussion going on about a big space battle or something and the decisions that were made and the consequences of that. But something that stands out for me was the quote, you can only judge a man's actions of what he knew at the time the decision was made. Now this... Again, references a space battle, but I think it applies to Jack, and you'll see why soon. So, as I tell this story, just try to take a breath and look at it from Jack's point of view. They had very little contact with the outside world. <laughs> there was still a lot of distrust, uh, distrust of the European medicines, and even at that time, they, they only stretched so far. Like There was only so much they could do. As a Wendigo hunter... Jack said that him and his brother Joseph had killed over 14 Wendigo in their time. So here it's more of a reference to the deep-seated belief structure and a means to survival in terrible and troubled times. It was said that Jack Fiddler got his name for his love of music and attempts to recreation of the musical instrument he saw at training expeditions. He was also known as Zehuanu Gezging Gabo, which means he who stands in the southern sky. Or Mesnawathano, from the Swampy Cree, which means the stylish man. That is an amazing nickname, by the way. I apologize for any mispronunciations. I mean to only show this man respect. I mentioned earlier that he was, his clan was a part of the Sucker Dodeman. A dodeman, which is, better, which is known better in English as a totem, is um, it's a form of government for the Algonquin people. It's a division of labor. It's where you would focus all of your studies and stuff like that. So if you're a part of one dotaman, you might be a hunter. If you're a part of another dotaman, you might be a medicine man. 
There are four main totems or subgroups. There's a lot more I've seen that listed up to about 22. But for this, we're going to just focus on the main four. And then just the sucker dotamen is a subgroup of one of the others. So depending on the clans that are in the area or the specific tribes, the totems might change or their importance might change. But the most common classifications disregarding the subgroups are crane, catfish, loon, bear, and marten. The Binduasi group is responsible for scouting, hunting, and gathering. Gishkaguana, Gishkaguan, teaching and hunting. Nuk, group defense and healing. Baswaneze, this group is outgoing international messages. Bemwanagik, internal communications as well as domestic relations. I did a terrible job pronunciating those, and I apologize. These are the overarching categories that contain the smaller subsets. Bear with this, crane with that, as well as smaller subsets like fox and rabbit. The stylish man was part of the sucker dotaman. This means that you're a part of the Gishkizwanaga grouping that was responsible for teaching and medicine. Contact with the Western world was limited. There was a Reverend Frederick George Stevens, a Methodist missionary, who had visited for only two days in 1899. It's important to note that Fiddler did not see his actions, nor did he, his tribe or any other member of that community see it as murder. He provided a service to the sick and dying individuals so that their souls could be clean and enter at the happy hunting ground, as well as protecting the tribes from these evil spirits. It was a form of euthanasia. Typically, it was requested by the, the sick individual themselves, and sometimes the close family member would bring the sick individual if, if he was too far gone to make the travel, to make that decision, they would do that for them. Think about it from that perspective. Of, of course, today with all of the medic medicine and infrastructure of getting a sick person help, I I'm not saying that like if that were to happen today, it's murder. Back then with the limited contact and resources, you would have to make some pretty terrible decisions to make sure that the most amount of your people could survive. And if, if you believe deeply enough in the Wendigo... What you were doing was good. In 1906, word reached the Northwest Mounted Police of a band of pagan Indians who were in the habit of killing one another whenever one gets delirious with fever or other causes. A patrol was sent out early in the following year. As the patrol reached Sandy Lake, they learned from relatives and other tribes that during the previous winter, Jack Fiddler and his brother Joseph had destroyed a Wendigo. The patrol continued to Caribou Lake, and on June 15, 1907, the brothers were arrested and charged with murder. The story hit the news in and across Canada, causing sensationalized and offensive headlines like dark deeds of Kiwetan Indians. They strangle and burn their sick friends. Toronto Globe. The Montreal Daily Witness read, Devil Worship Among the Cree. Jack Fiddler snuck away from his guard and hung himself with his sash. 
on September 30, 1907, after 15 weeks of captivity. His brother Joseph began his trial and was given no legal counsel under direction of Canada's Department of Justice. Those familiar with the tribe were not called to explain tribal custom. Royal Northwest Mounted Police Commissioner Ellsworth Bowen Perry told the jury, What the law forbids, no pagan belief can justify. The jury found Joseph guilty, but requested leniency. The judge disregarded this and sentenced him to hang. Many people came to the defense of the brothers, especially those familiar with the band. Gilbert Edward Sanders, a superintendent for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, asked for the proceedings to be dropped. It appears that the evidence will not warrant a conviction, he wrote. Sergeant David Bennett Smith of the Norway House Detachment reported, Jack Fiddler is very old. He falls down and his heart and pulse are very weak on such occasions. The Methodist missionary that visited years prior had become more familiar with the band. He wrote, He is not the slightest sign of enmity or hatred towards men nor God. No rebellion or unbelief. He is a quiet, dignified man who has lived his life with a clear conscience. Appeals for Joseph's release finally came through on September 4, 1909. Unfortunately, this was three days late. Joseph had died of consumption. The symbolism of the Wendigo was that it represented famine, greed, and the terrible repercussions of accepting cannibalism as an option. It was presented in oral traditions and dances to reinforce the cultural taboos. It was such a part of the psychology of the Ojibwe and Cree people that psychologists have deemed it Wendigo psychosis. It's culture bond syndrome. So a culture bond syndrome, or folk illness, is something that manifests only in certain societies or cultures just there's enough of a belief or cultural behavior that it's very limited and only exists within that kind of framework so it it can be very very broad kind of condition like in japan there's extreme shyness and it's been identified and treated for decades It's when someone's extremely embarrassed about themselves or fearful of displeasing others when it comes to the functions of their bodies or appearance. They do not want to embarrass others with their presence. It's a social phobia. So what some psychologists have put forth is that the Wendigo was such a part of the mentality of the people and so real that when these people had a psychotic break or... If they had to commit cannibalism, the, the pain from that would be so strong and so real that it would manifest itself into a cannibalistic monster. They would become the Wendigo. Like, and then think about the powers that the Wendigo had, like the unearthly howl that could scare away any kind of game. Can you imagine if someone in your tribe had lost their mind had started eating other people in your tribe, you kick them out or you you get rid of them, you didn't have the chance to kill them, then they're out there screaming and shrieking and driving away all of the deer that you could eat and feed your, your people with. They're driving away any kind of bird. 
and stuff like that. They're wrecking things around. I can't imagine like the the, the decisions you would have to make or what you, what you would see like it's becoming more and more powerful because it's the only thing that's eating in the area. I guess that's when you bring in the Wendigo Hunter. I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of the Midnight Owl. I've called it episode two. I've called it episode one. I'm undecided if I'm putting up an introduction or if I want to keep this show as open and loose as possible. We'll try trying to still give you stories of the occult, the supernatural, and the cryptozoological. Thank you. Thank you for listening all the way through. Email me at beardedandboard at gmail.com. That's B-E-A-R-D-E-D-A-N-D-B-O-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you. And don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. Mm-hmm.